Welcome to the Calvary Community Church Podcast. For more content and information about Calvary, please visit our website at calvaryhouston.com. We're so excited that you're with us to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, thank you so much for joining with us. I'm praying that the Lord will bless you. I'm praying that you will feel and experience the love of God that he has for you. I'm praying that the Lord would grant you grace and the Lord would grant you peace. And I pray that the Lord would use you to be a blessing in the earth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I have a question for you. What answer would you get to this question if you asked people throughout the world? What is the most important day of the year for Christians? What would most people say? Well, I believe that most people would say Christmas. And I can understand where they're coming from. Growing up, Christmas was the biggest and the most important day for me. I loved Christmas growing up. I loved the presents. I loved the food. I loved the presents. I loved the family gathering. I loved the presents. Uh, Well, you get the picture, don't you? I, I, I believe most people would say Christmas. Actually, the most important day for Christians is Easter. This is the moment of new creation. This is the day when everything changed. If it hadn't been for Easter, no one had even dreamed of celebrating Christmas. This is the first day of God's new week. The darkness is gone and the sun is shining. Yes, I am so grateful that the Lord has left a clear witness in our culture to himself. At least twice a year on Easter and Christmas, people are thinking about going to church. And people are just waiting for an invitation. They're waiting for someone to invite them. And maybe you were invited to join the live streams here at one of the churches around. Well, there's actually, I guess, a third time in the year when people are thinking about going to church, and that's called Mother's Day. That's no, not so much an invitation as it is rather a strong suggestion or an instruction like, let's do this. Uh, you do want to do this for me, right? And moms, you you know what I'm talking about, right? It's kind of like the Jedi mind trick. And so these are the three largest days of the church in in attendance in our nation. That's Easter, Christmas, and Mother's Day. And today we gather online and we gather to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And experts are telling us this is probably the largest gathering in the history of the church as people from all around the world are gathering almost simultaneously in the midst of coronavirus to celebrate that Jesus is risen. And we know today that people are searching for good news. According to one source, Google searches for the words good news are at an all-time high. As a matter of fact, it turns out that people are searching for that phrase, good news, more than any phrase and more than any other time since Google began publishing its trends in 2004. And today, I have good news for you. Christ is risen. Surely we have good news in the midst of dealing with the difficulties and darkness of the coronavirus. Jesus has conquered death, disease, darkness, and demons. Jesus has done what no one thought was possible. He is the first resurrection with a new body, and he is the first fruits from the dead. 
Jesus is vindicated by his resurrection to rule as king of kings and lord of lords. And we declare that no one is like you, Lord Jesus. No one. And because he lives, I live now and for eternity. Because he lives, I am an overcomer in Christ. Because he lives, I am now a part of new creation and the work of restoring and renewing all things in partnership with the Lord. Because he lives, I will never, never be the same. Because he lives, the world will never, never be the same. So we have good news today. Because of what we're facing and dealing with the unknown uncertainties and the uncertainties of life and pandemic. And the scripture points us to meditate on what Jesus endured and overcame for us. And by meditating on that, we will get physical strength and even emotional strength, especially when times are hard. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, the scripture says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us, And let us run with endurance that race marked out before us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of the heavenly Father. Consider him who endured such opposition against himself so that you'll not grow weary and lose heart. So from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, it says, when you're going through difficulty and darkness, think about what Jesus went through with his arrest and then with the trial and then with the crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection. Think about that episode, meditate on it, and that will impart life to you by the Holy Spirit. It'll impart physical strength and it will impart emotional strength. I believe in the public reading of the Holy Scripture The word of God is important, and I like to let it speak for itself. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from John. We're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, but we're going to start in John chapter 19, verse 16. We're going to read some of the verses, and we're going to read all the way down through the gospel of John chapter 20, and we're going to read through verse 23. And so uh, I want you to hear what the Lord is saying, and I want you to receive what God is saying to you and that you would experience his word. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 19. Let's read beginning in verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers, they took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him with two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had noticed prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign for there, that place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. When the soldiers crucified him, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in piece, one piece from top to bottom. Let's tear it, they said. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. 
Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, his disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, and they soaked it in a sponge and put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted that to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Now, it was a day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, suddenly bringing forth a flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And the other scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it in the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone that had been removed from the entrance. She came running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth had been folded up by itself, separated from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw, and he believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb. She was crying. As she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb, and two angels in white, seated where Jesus had been, one at the head and the other at the foot, 
They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, please tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on for me, to me, for I have not yet returned to my father. Go instead and tell my brothers and say this to them. I am returning to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. For the readers in John's day, they all knew what crucifixion meant. They all knew what it meant to be crucified. It was a gruesome, torturous, excruciatingly painful and humiliating way to die. Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, back several years ago, captures vividly what Jesus went through. I declare to you that Jesus was not a wimp. Jesus was a man who was full of courage. He was full of strength, facing death, darkness, and demons head on. The high priest Caiaphas and the religious leaders had actually backed Pilate into a corner, and we read about that in John chapter 19, verses 10 to 15. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate asked? Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar, and anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought out Jesus and sat on the judge's seat at the place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. He said, here is your king. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Jesus said to them. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Well, when the high priest and the religious leaders threatened that Rome would find out if Pilate didn't do something about this rebel leader, then that got Pilate's attention. In fear, Pilate gave in to their demands to crucify Jesus, and then Pilate rubbed it in their faces in three different languages. He wrote as the charge on the cross where Jesus was crucified, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. What a turn of events. In order to reject the claim of Jesus to be the true reflection of their one true God, one commentator said, they find themselves driven back into the arms of a pagan empire. We have no king but Caesar. What a devastating thing to hear coming from the lips of the representatives of Judaism. But through this inscription on the cross of Jesus, through this notice, John is declaring to the whole world in three different languages that Jesus is the Messiah. How can this be? 
as Messiah or King, Jesus is fulfilling the biblical prophecies about the suffering righteous one in whom the sufferings of Israel would come to their height. Through the Messiah's tribulation and death, evil would be exhausted and the kingdom of God would be born on the earth. And even in the midst, when you get down to verse 25, even in the midst of great travail and great personal distress and torture, even in the midst of dying, Jesus remembered his mother and tended to her needs. Remember, that's the God that we know, the God that we serve. Later, in verse 28, we're reminded, we're reminded of the many times that Jesus had spoken of water. In verse 28, later knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Again, many times in the past, in the Gospel of John, Jesus had talked about water. There's the sign of, of John chapter two. There's the long discussion with the woman in John chapter four, the woman at the well of Samaria. And Jesus was offering her living water, and it was clear that he had it in abundant supply. Then in John chapter six, he spoke of those who believed in him who would not only not be hungry, they would never be thirsty again. He amplifies his message about the living water in chapter seven. He speaks exuberantly about this living water that was available to anyone who came to him. They could satisfy their thirst forever by believing in him. Indeed, they would have rivers of water springing up from within themselves. All this only heightens our sense of awe and our sense of horror as we get the full impact of what the Lord is saying. The thought of Jesus himself being thirsty. Had the water of life failed? Had the wine run out for good? He saved others, could he not save himself? Just as with the crown of thorns and the mocking purple robe, this is all a part of the Lord communicating to us what only he can do. He must come to the place where everyone else is, that place of thirst, that place of shame, that place of death. This too is a fulfillment of the scripture. And when he had finished the drink, Jesus said, it's finished, and with that he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. With Genesis 1 in the back of his mind from the very beginning, as John was sharing, led by the Holy Spirit, the sequence of these seven signs in his gospel, the completing the accomplishment of the new creation has an inevitability about it. Now here we are at the foot of the cross, and John has told us throughout his gospel that when Jesus is lifted up, this will be the moment of God's glory shining through him in its full strength. And these signs are the things that reveal God's glory. Again, as one commentator says, it's more or less certain that John intends the crucifixion itself to be a seventh sign in his gospel pointing to Jesus. And as though as to confirm this, Jesus gives out one last cry and says, it is finished. It's all done. It's complete. He has finished the work that the Father has given him to do. He loved to the very end those who are his own in this world. He has completed and accomplished his task fully and finally. And that word which is translated as finished is actually one word in the original language. It's a word that people would write on a bill after it had been paid. The bill is dealt with. It's finished. The price has been paid. Yes, John says, and Jesus' work is now complete. And every sense of that word 
and people can stake their lives on it. The Jews wanted the bodies taken down because it was time for the it was time for the Sabbath day. They were getting ready. It's the day of preparation. They were getting ready for the Sabbath day. The Bible had declared that bodies of executed people should not remain hanging overnight according to Deuteronomy 21.3. It would pollute the land. So they went and asked Pilate to have their legs broken so that the bodies could be taken down. But according to John 19.31, Jesus had already died. Just to make sure, a soldier thrust a spear into his side to make sure that he was dead. Now John testifies in verses 35, he, in verse 35, he testifies that he personally saw all this happen. He said Jesus wasn't swooning or pretending, he was really dead. He says my testimony is true. And by the way, John also makes clear that the tomb was new. He knew that later there would be some that would accuse the disciples of not knowing where the body of Jesus was laid on Sunday morning, they didn't get confused and forget where the tomb was. They knew right where the body of Jesus was laid to rest, according to John 19, 41. And again, everything that happened to Jesus was in fulfillment of the scriptures of what God said would happen in John 19, 36 and 37. Everything happened to Jesus in fulfillment of the scripture. No bone was broken and his body was pierced. And then there were followers of Jesus in this day, even among the religious rulers and leaders. They kept quiet because their lives were in danger if it became known that they followed Jesus. Now, one of those secret followers, Joseph of Arimathea, steps into the light. He has an unused tomb. He and Nicodemus took the body of Jesus to the tomb. We remember Nicodemus from John chapter 3, don't we? In that encounter... Jesus explained what it meant to be born again, what it meant to be born of water and the Spirit. Jesus shares the good news with Nicodemus in John 3, 16 and 17. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John is also pointing back to creation. He has brought us to the seventh sign, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus was also there for the creation of the world. John chapter one says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made and without him was nothing made that is made and that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. This light shines in the darkness, but the darkness could not understand it or could not conquer it. God brought forth creation out of the darkness, out of chaos, and out of void originally. On the seventh day, which came after the first six days of his good creative work, God rested. Now, we read in verses 41 and 42 that Jesus is laid in a tomb to rest on the Sabbath, the seventh day. But on the eighth day, the day of new creation, the beginning, the first day of a beginning of a new week, something is coming. New creation is coming. So while it's still dark, very early on Sunday morning, everything is changed. I read this from a commentator. He said, a colleague of mine worked in Lebanon during that awful civil war in the second half of the 20th century. He reported an interesting phenomenon which helps to understand 
what was happening at the foot of the cross. Rival militias were stalking the streets of Beirut. Men were armed to the teeth, struggling for control of different streets in key buildings. No man dared to venture out of doors unless he was heavily armed, preferably in a group or with some kind of protection. But the women were free to come and go as they pleased. It was understood that they were non-combatants. Also, one assumes that they needed to do basic shopping to keep families uh, going even amidst such civil unrest. A man was vulnerable to being attacked, kidnapped, or killed, but a woman was not. This sheds light on the incident that we read in these passages. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, the report is that women as well as men became victims of persecution, but clearly, in the time of Jesus' death, it was not so. The disciples had all run away to hide. They didn't dare to show their faces, but there was no problem with the women being there, which was revealed by their actions. Nobody was going to bother arresting them. Mary Magdalene had been there at the crucifixion of Jesus, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and the Apostle John. It's interesting Apostle John failed to garner attention because he was a young man. He was probably not seen as a threat to the soldiers. And now it's Mary who's the first one to the tomb. She's the first one to tell the apostles that the tomb is empty. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb in John 20 verse 3. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John gets to the tomb and he looks in, but he didn't go in. As soon as Peter got there, he ran past him and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth and the cloth that had been around Jesus' head. Finally, the other disciple, verse 8, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and he believed. John began to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. According to Jewish understanding of that day, resurrection would only happen for everyone at the end of the age. But it would not happen before then for one person. John begins at this point to believe in resurrection. Oh, the possibilities. In Jesus, God was making all things new. Light was breaking into our darkness. Jesus ushered in a new covenant, a new creation, and a new kingdom. Our God makes all things new. The Son of Man, Christ Jesus our Lord, He is the firstfruits of new creation. But what about Mary? What about the other disciples? Verses 10 and 11 says that Mary stood outside the tomb of the Lord Jesus crying. The other disciples went back to their homes. They were still hurting, disillusioned, confused, and grieving. Broken hearted, Mary looks into the tomb and then now she sees two angels there. Why are you crying, they asked. She's in mourning. She's in grieving. She's come to the tomb to mourn and to grieve and to care for the body. She has come to be with her Lord. She's come to pour out her grief. She doesn't know who has taken his body nor where they've taken it. So Mary turns then and sees someone else. She's crying too much to realize that it's Jesus. Now she is asked a second time, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? She thinks Jesus is the gardener. Was it his clothes? All she knows is that she can't find Jesus and she must find him. 
As one author writes, Mary's intuitive guess that he must be the gardener was wrong at one level and right, deeply right, at another level. This is the new creation. Jesus is the beginning of it. Remember Pilate said, here's the man. Well, here he is, the new Adam, the gardener, charged with bringing the chaos of God's creation into new order, into flower, into fruitfulness. She has come to uproot. He has come to uproot the thorns and thistles and replace them with blossoms and harvests. So she's looked at this one that she thinks is the gardener. Mary, Jesus calls her name. Mary's heart leapt in her chest. Previously, Jesus had said, his sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Mary knows his voice and Mary knows her name on the lips of Jesus. So she grabs him, probably falling down at his feet, clinging to him, laying hold of his feet. And so Jesus tells her, stop clinging to me. And he, and he tells her to stop holding on and trying to possess him. And then Jesus sends her, and listen to what he says. He sends her to the disciples and says, tell my brothers, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Everything has changed. Jesus is not ashamed to call us my brothers and my sisters. He has come to make God known to us, and Jesus has done that. I am returning to my Father and to your Father. I'm returning to my God and to your God, Jesus said. Can you hear how personal that is? Can you hear how everything has changed? Mary's not upset by Jesus telling her to stop clinging to him. She doesn't feel it as a rebuff. She has business now to do. Once again, she's the messenger. She's the first preacher or the first teacher to the apostles. She goes and says, I've seen the master. And this is what he said. Oh, there's nothing like a fresh, firsthand testimony. And it still counts today. If someone in the first century had wanted to invent a story about people seeing Jesus, they wouldn't have dreamed of giving the star part to a woman, much less to Mary Magdalene. But that's the testimony of Resurrection Day and the message that Jesus is risen. He is alive. The Lord knows how some of us are feeling. He knows how you're feeling right now. And he meets you where you are, like he met Mary. He wants to meet you where you are. Some of us are grieving. There's a number of different kinds of griefs. The grief that the world has changed, and it has. And we know this is temporary, but it doesn't feel that way. We realize things can change permanently, right? Like what happened after 9-11. There was a loss of normalcy, the fear of economic toil, the, the loss of connection. We're all grieving collectively. Now, we're not used to this kind of collective grief. Then there's anticipatory grief. Anticipatory grief is that feeling that we get about the future when things seem to be uncertain. Usually, it centers around death. We feel it when someone gets a dire diagnosis or when the normal thought hits us that our parents won't be around forever. Anticipatory grief is something that's broadly imagined about our future. 
there's a storm coming or there's something bad out there. With a virus, this kind of grief is so confusing for people. Our primitive mind knows something bad is happening, but you can't see it. That breaks our sense of safety. So we're actually feeling that loss of safety. Whenever have we lost our general sense of safety like this? Yes, individually or in smaller groups perhaps, people have felt this. But altogether, this is new. We are grieving on the micro level and the macro level. Understanding the stages of grief is helpful in a start. But remember that the stages of grief, they're not linear. They may happen in different order. But there's the denial, which we say a lot of early on, like this virus won't affect us. Then there's anger. You're making me stay home and you're taking away my normal activities. Then there's a a kind of bargaining that goes on. Well, okay, if I social distance for two or three weeks, everything will be back to normal, right? And then there's sadness. I don't know when this is going to end. And finally, there's acceptance. This is happening, and I have to figure out how to proceed. Acceptance is actually the place of transformation. We find something that we can do in our current reality, like I can wash my hands, I can keep a safe distance, I can learn how to work virtually. I will adjust, I will make it. But one of the stages that's not mentioned is the stage of meaning. I believe that God comes and gives meaning to us in the midst of our grief and our loss. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 19 to 26, I remember my affliction and my wondering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him, for the one who seeks him. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait patiently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Meaning, God comes in the midst of our grief and he's the one who helps us to give meaning and understanding even when things are being shaken like they were for Jeremiah and everything that he knew was being destroyed. As a follower of Jesus, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, I believe that he is able to work out all things for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose which is to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not everything happens to me is good, but God works it out for good in my life because he's a redeeming God. God takes it and he makes meaning of it and understanding. So some of us are grieving, some of us are fearful. We're We're adding tomorrow's what ifs to today's concerns. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, don't add tomorrow's what ifs to today's concerns. In Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble for its own. The antidote for fear is the presence of the Lord. In the book of Joshua, the Lord says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. 
do not be discouraged for the Lord God will the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go it's his presence that is the antidote for fear listen to what the Lord says in Isaiah chapter 43 but now this is what the Lord says he who created you O Jacob he who formed you O Israel fear not for I have redeemed you I have summoned you by name and you are mine when you pass through the waters I will be with you when you pass through the raging rivers they will not sweep over you when you walk through the fire they'll you will not be burned those raging flames will not set you ablaze for I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel your Savior you are precious and honored in my sight and I love you it's the presence of the Lord it's the presence of the Lord that is that which defeats that fear and that anxiety grace for dealing with anxiety and fear comes when we cast all our anxieties upon him because he cares for us so some of us are grieving some of us are afraid or dealing with fear or anxiety then others of us are disillusioned the things that we have trusted in have collapsed things like our jobs the economy our health or whatever Psalm 46, chapter, chapter 46, verse 1 speaks to this. God is our refuge and strength. He is an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fail. God will help her at daybreak. Nations are in an uproar and kingdoms fail, but he lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In the midst of everything that, be, that can be shaken, the Lord wants us to lay hold of his kingdom, which cannot be shaken. So the Lord knows how you're feeling right now. And he wants to meet you where you are, whether you're grieving, whether you're fearful, or whether you're disillusioned, just like he did for Mary and the disciples. In times of uncertainty, people are searching for good news. Humans are always searching for saviors. False gospels abound. Some people place their hope in the good news of economic stability. Others place their hope in the good news of health for others, perhaps they find their joy and good news in family relationships or in friendships. These are all good things, but none of these are the good news which we can place our ultimate hope in. The empty nature of these false, false gospels is being revealed in this time of uncertainty. Simply put, in a moment of crisis like this, economic stability and physical illusions are out, and, and physical health are outed as the illusions that they are. Right now we find ourselves in a moment where God is moving in the affairs of humanity in such a way to reveal that those narratives, they are false. So people are literally searching on Google for good news now that the illusion of control is gone. So today I bring you good news. Listen to these verses. Today I bring you good news. Christ is risen, he is resurrected. Jesus came preaching, the time has come. He said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the, the good news. God's kingdom has come near to us, to you and to me. 
Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. What's the good news that they share? God brings hope and wholeness and well-being. God brings a report from the front lines of the battle that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light is advancing against the kingdom of darkness. We proclaim the good news of salvation, that we have a savior, a redeemer, who has conquered death, disease, demons, and darkness. We have a savior, and he saves us and redeems us. And we have good news that we declare our God reigns. We're not left to the whims of this broken world. We're not left left to the whims of our own broken lives and our broken culture. Our God reigns. And as Margaret read earlier, we have good news because of what Jesus has done for us. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, and they sang a new song and they said, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men and women for God from every tongue, tribe, language, and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. That's good news, that we have a purpose, that Jesus bought us with his own blood, not simply so we'd have a better, happier life, but so that we could be a part of the family of God, and we could be a part of his advancing army, ruling and reigning with him as priests and kings, advancing the mission of the Lord Jesus, partnering with Jesus on the earth. And then listen to Revelation 21, one to five. This is the new creation, this is the new kingdom that's broken in right now. Yes, it's here in part, but one day, it's gonna be here in its complete fullness. Look at what God says, and listen to his testimony. Revelation 21, one to five. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Oh, I'm bringing you good news today to say, Jesus, on the day of the resurrection, of of the Lord. God began to do his new creation work and he is after that work and he's about renewing and restoring all things to God and you and I are a part of that. Yes, there's gonna be accelerations and yes, we're gonna partner with him when he comes again for a thousand years but I want you to know that he is making all things new and that's good news and he starts with you and he starts with me when we turn our lives over to him and we receive him. You and I can personally experience the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, John 1, 12. We can become a part of this good news. We can receive it, receive Jesus as the free gift of God. 
you can pray right now and receive this free gift of life that God offers you in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, John three sixteen. For God so loved you that he gave his only son that if you believe in him, you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. He did not come into this world to condemn you, but to save you. It's good news that you can receive this gift of the resurrected life of Jesus. You can receive life, and you can pray and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I receive, Father, your love for me. I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I turn from my way, and I turn to you. And with your help, I will follow you, Lord Jesus. With the help of your Holy Spirit all the days of my life, you can receive this gift. Oh, the, the kingdom of God has come near to you today, to me today. And we can say yes to following Jesus. Jesus looked at the disciples, and he said, come follow me. He called them to an intimate relationship with him. He called them to partnership and relationship with him. And he said that through me, you can have a relationship with the eternal father. Oh my, we can follow the Lord Jesus. We can partner with him on his mission in the earth to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God right now on the earth. We can show people what it's like when God rules and reigns on the earth. And God wants to do that through our lives, through the lives of men, women, boys, and girls. You and I can personally experience good news today in the person of the Lord Jesus. So I declare to you, Christ is risen. I declare to you that Jesus has conquered sin and Satan and self. Jesus has defeated death and darkness and demons and disease. And you can have a personal relationship with him. You can pray. You can talk to Jesus. The Lord Jesus is calling you by name. Will you respond to him today? For those of you that have walked away from Jesus, I can hear his voice. You can hear his voice saying, come. Come back. Follow me. I pray that you'll do that. And so, Lord, I want to pray that for my friends right now. Lord, we want to thank you for the power and the victory of the resurrection of Jesus. We want to thank you that this testimony of Jesus is clear and alive for us today. Thank you, Jesus, that you still rule and reign at the right hand of the Father. Thank you that you're at work in the earth. We bless your work. Thank you that the kingdom of God is near to us. Thank you that you've come near to us in the spirit of Christ. And today we say yes to you. On behalf of those that you're calling for the first time, I stand in the gap and I pray that they'll have ears to hear hearts to receive and eyes to see what you're saying and doing and what you want them to experience. And I pray they'll say yes to you. Lord, for those of us that know you, I pray that there'll be a new energy in our lives as we think about you and as we think about these passages and think about what you went through. Lord, I pray that you would pour physical strength into us. I pray that you'll pour emotional strength into us and meet us right where we are, whether we're grieving fearful or disillusioned thank you that you are our hope and our answer lord jesus and i pray that you would help my brothers and sisters so i speak grace to everyone hearing my voice and i speak good news to you and i speak blessing to you and i declare this in the name of the lord jesus christ amen god bless you thanks for participating with us in the live stream and on demand May God bless you in Jesus' name.
We hope you've enjoyed this episode from Calvary Community Church Podcast. For more content and information about Calvary Community Church, please visit our website at calvaryhouston.com.